Good morning. This morning we're going to be reading from Isaiah chapter 37, verses 1 through 7, and then we're going to drop down to verses 14 through 20 of the book of Isaiah. I'll give you a chance to, to find that. And if you are able, I'd ask that you would stand for the reading of the word. Beginning in verse 1. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna, the secretary, and the senior priest covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amoz. They said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Now down in verse 14. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are God. You alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear all the words of Shinacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the king of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. This is the reading of the word. Thank you, John. I do want to invite you into, if this is your first time with us on a Sunday morning, I want to invite you into the book of Isaiah. Uh, we are studying through Isaiah, and I want to invite you to read it with us, to work its vision of God into your life, to, to work this vision of God as the unrivaled king of the world into your life. God wants to reshape my life God wants to reshape your life. Like, aren't you tired? I'll say it for us. I am tired of living for my own kingdom. Aren't you tired of living for your own kingdom? I want, Isaiah's teaching me about what it would look like to live for the unrivaled king. So that's what I want to talk to you about today. And, I, and we want to pray to him like we see Hezekiah pray to him. 
the unrivaled king. So we're going to learn some things about what it would look like for God's kingdom to overwhelm my own kingdom this morning. Isaiah was a writing prophet, and so most of the book uh, that has come to us so far has been in the form, he's also a poet, and he writes in poetic form. So most of what we've studied so far has been in verse form, not so much in historical narrative or in prose. So what's happening in this section of 36 and 37 is an unfolding story. So I want to give it to you in story form. I want to give it to you in three acts. Act 1, Act 2, and Act 3. Act 1 is the Assyrian threat. Act 2, Hezekiah's godly response. Act 3, the unrivaled king on his throne. So join me in chapter 36, back up a chapter, for Act 1. Act 1 starts in chapter 36, verse 1. And I'm going to read verses 1, 2, and 3 to set the scene for you for Act 1. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, another king, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them, conquered them. Verse 2, and the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he, the Rabshakeh, he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the whole household, the royal household, and Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph the recorder. Here's the scene. The scene is about 701 BC outside of the city wall of Jerusalem at a reservoir. And so this is close enough to the wall that you could hear what's happening there in this exchange that's about to unfold. So it's outside of the city wall but not far from the city wall. And the players are two kings and their representatives. So the two kings are the king of Assyria, Sennacherib, and King Hezekiah of Judah. Sennacherib wants to conquer Jerusalem. He wants to conquer Judah so he can expand his southern territories. The two representatives of those kingdoms are the Ravshakah on one hand. He goes with Assyria. And in verse 3, Eliakim and his company who represent Hezekiah. Let's just call Rob Shekha, let's just call him Rob, the Rav for short. Okay, the Rav. Uh, a little bit of Hebrew there for you, so you'd pronounce that B-R-A-B, you'd pronounce it more like a V, so Rav, something like that. All right, does that work for you? The Rav, it'll be so much easier. Okay, so a note on the Rav as we get into Act 1. The Rav is a, uh, think of him as a military negotiator. The text says he brings a great army with him. So he's standing outside of the walls of Jerusalem in front of a great army. This guy is a military negotiator. Don't think nice negotiator. Think intimidator. He's slick. He's confident. He knows how to make a deal. And he's there with a huge army. The text says a great army. He knows how to get what he wants, and he's trying to get what the king of Assyria wants. He's trying to get what his team, he's, he's negotiating for his team, and he's intimidating for his team. 
Now as we walk through verses four through 10 of this same chapter, watch for how the kingdoms of this world want to intimidate and dismantle the kingdom of God. That's what's happening here. The kingdoms of this world want to intimidate and threaten and dismantle the kingdom of God. How, how they will try to convince us that God cannot be trusted. How they will openly defy God's kingdom and claim that the, that the Lord is really not a king. That's what's happening in 4 through 10. Watch this. Let's walk through uh, the four reasons why the Rav thinks Hezekiah should just surrender Jerusalem. He's got four main parts to his argument. Four reasons, just make this simple, give the city up to us, and nobody gets hurt. That's kind of his, his deal. Let me give you the four reasons. Verse 6, he says, Egypt can't help you anyway. You're thinking about relying on Egypt to help you. They can't help you. Egypt is like a reed with a splinter down the middle. If you were to lean on it hard enough, it would snap like a walking stick that would just snap in half. Egypt can't help you anymore. Don't try to rely on Egypt. Egypt can't help you. Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, uh, on what do you rest this trust of yours, verse four? Do you think strategy in mere words? You think you can negotiate with Egypt, verse six, trusting in them? No, 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 that's not gonna work. Here's the second thing that's not gonna work for you. Verse seven, the Rav says, trusting in the Lord is not an option either. Look at what he says. But if you say to me, verse seven, we trust in the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed? See, at this point, he's betraying his misunderstanding of who God is. Um, he's saying, how are you going to rely on the God that Hezekiah just upset by tearing down the altars? In fact, God has not been upset by Hezekiah's reform and renewal and the tearing down of the Asherah poles and all the stuff of pagan worship. Not at all. God has been pleased by Hezekiah's reform. The Rav is a little misinformed on who Yahweh is and how he wants to be worshipped. So he says, you can't trust in Egypt. You can't trust in your own Lord. He's got bad information there. Here's the third point. He says in verse eight, you don't have any manpower. Come now, make a wager with the master of the king of Assyria. Like, come and listen to what I, I'll give you 2,000 horses if you're able to put riders on them. Come now and let's make a deal. He's really not trying to make a deal with them. He's actually making fun of them. He's saying, uh, look, if, look, I want you to understand something. We are so dominant, Assyria is so dominant as a world superpower that if we wanted to give you 2,000 horses for sale, because we don't give horses away, but if we wanted to sell them to you, you would only have enough riders to put on them. He's not really trying to make a deal with him. He's insulting them. He's mocking them. He's saying, what do you... What do you think is going to happen here when we go to war? We're going to dominate you. So he's making fun of them and saying, you don't even have enough riders to put on the horses you would get from us, and we don't even need those 2,000 horses. We can take you down. Third, uh, fourth, he says, verse 10, Moreover, is it without the Lord that I've come against this land to destroy it? Like This is the king of Assyria speaking. 
Moreover, I'm here on divine authorization. The Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. Now, this is really interesting. We're not sure of the sourcing on this, but apparently spies have always been around in wartime, right? And spies either have access to or have picked up the word that Isaiah has been preaching about judgment coming on God's people from other nations. So, the king of Assyria decides to work that into his negotiation strategy through the Rav, and the Rav says, look, the Lord said we're going to destroy this city. So, yes, it's blasphemous because they do not have a true relationship with Yahweh, and yet it somehow speaks to the kind of information that's floating around about God judging his own people. So, so uh, what you have going on here is this sustained argument from the Rav. There, look, we're going to destroy Jerusalem. Just give up. And it'll be a lot easier. Now, in verse 11, Eliakim, who we don't have any reason to think doesn't know the Lord and have a legitimate faith like that of Hezekiah, Eliakim, verse 13, Shebna, etc., hey, uh, Mr. Rav, could you turn it down a notch? Because all the people on the wall who are hearing you in our own mother tongue are a little, you're creating anxiety about a war here that's not necessary yet. So could you keep it uh, in Aramaic? If you could keep it in Aramaic, then we won't have too much of an issue here. No, 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 the Rav decides to turn it up and he continues to speak in the language of Judah, the text says. And he speaks louder to make the point. Look at verse 13. Then the Rav stood up and called out in a loud voice, hear the words of the great king. Insert there, parenthetically, the theme of the book of Isaiah. There's only one great king. And now you can see where this is going. The Rav is crying out, hear the words of the one great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, don't believe Hezekiah. He's going to deceive you, saying that the Lord will deliver you. And what happens by the end of Act 1 is you see the rival threat of the Assyrian kingdom taking on the kingdom of God. That's what's going on. Drop down to verse 21 for the end of Act 1. After the Rav makes this threatening, loud proclamation, don't trust in the Lord, there's one great king and we're about to take the city. Verse 21 says, but they were silent, that is Eliakim and company. They were silent and answered him not a word for the king's command, Hezekiah, inside the city wall, was don't answer him. Don't say anything back to him. Come back to me first. Verse 22, Then Eliakim and the rest of his company tore their clothes, tore their garments, and went to King Hezekiah and told them the words of the Rav. 
that's where Act 1 closes. Right about now, my kids are like, can we go get popcorn now? Act 1, can we take a break? Get a cliff bar? No, you got to stay here. Act 2. Hezekiah's godly response. The scene is inside the city wall. The palace and the temple. The players are King Hezekiah, Eliakim and company, and a new person on the scene, Isaiah. Verse 1, chapter 37. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. As soon as he heard it, his response was to, to tear his clothes in an act of humility and put on a burlap uh, kind of bag, garment, uh, think uncomfortable burlap cloth that would be nothing like the royal garments he would be used to wearing. And he puts that on as a sign of humility and a sign of dependence and a sign of brokenness and a sign of mourning, like the end is here. His response is incredibly instructive. Now, we know from 2 Kings 18 that he already tried to buy his way out of this situation, so we don't want to make him appear better than he is. But something is happening inside of him. He stands in the long line of Davidic kings, some of whom were more godly, like David. Uh, Few of them who were more godly, I should say. And Hezekiah is one of them, and he's got a growing sense of godliness. And something is happening inside of him. And he says, go to Isaiah and ask Isaiah to pray, verse 3, because this is a day of incredible distress, and death feels like it's upon us like a mother who's ready to give birth, but, but she's, it's a stillborn, and there's no, there's no power, no strength to bring forth this life, and it's just like a day of death. It's like the mother and child are both in, in, in the balance. I feel like today is a day of death. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of this threatening Rav and, 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 and respond. And so Hezekiah asks Isaiah to pray. Lift up your prayer, verse 4. Isaiah, lift up your prayer to the Lord your God. Maybe he will hear. Maybe he will hear and respond to the one who is mocking the living God, verse 4 says. This is a really important theme when you think about the kings and when you think about David's life. When you think about how repeatedly in David's life, David would sing that same song, we will not let God be mocked, right? I mean, think back to David and Goliath, that scene on the field. Think about how God is being mocked and David, this this young, ruddy shepherd boy, says, you guys are going to let him mock? You're going to let Goliath mock the... The living God? There's no faith in that. And David steps up to the giant. Not to prove that God can take our giants down, but to prove that God is the true king of the world. 
and he can take our giants down. And that's, that's what's brewing here in Hezekiah's, you know, I need Isaiah to pray for us. This is for real. He's mocking God. They want to take this city, God. It's your city. And so Hezekiah calls on Isaiah to pray, and Isaiah responds in verse 5. So pick up in verse 5. And when the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to the king, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of what he has said. And because they have reviled me, the king of Assyria and his young men who think they can take whatever city they want. Don't be afraid of them. Behold, I'll put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Isaiah is basically saying in reply, God will not be mocked. God will not be mocked. Then in verses 8 and following, the Rav withdraws the troops from Jerusalem. Now there's some backstory as to why that happens in verse 8, kind of building out from verse 7, why it is they turn away from Jerusalem. I don't, I'm going to get into that for the sake of time. But in any case, as they withdraw from Jerusalem, they want to deliver a personal letter from one king to another. And so that letter is really important because in verses 10 and following, you get the contents of the letter which basically says we took all the other kingdoms, we'll take yours as well, so this is your last chance. So the content of the letter, orally spoken, is in verses 10, 11, 12, and 13. Drop to verse 14, and you see Hezekiah receives a written letter, okay? So Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers, verse 14, and he read it. Now I want you to watch what Hezekiah does with this threatening artifact, this letter. Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers, verse 14, chapter 37. And he read it, and he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. He took the threat against his life and the kingdom of God, and he laid it before God. Look at this. See, there's this growth and there's this, there's this growing, changing, deepening faith alive in Hezekiah because he's called on Isaiah to pray first, but now he's saying, man, I need to pray. And he takes this threatening letter and he just lays it before God in the temple. He lays it on the altar. He lays it before God and says, I'm going to give this threat to you. Note to self. This is an incredible example for what you should do when you feel threatened. Written threats, oral threats, unspoken anxieties that you are sure are coming against you. Whatever the threats that you think are about to take your life, you just, this is incredibly instructive. I'm going to just do what Hezekiah did and I'm going to Spread it out before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed. I 
I'm going to show you this. Rich, God-centered prayer. Just make a few observations for yourself. As you learn how to pray and you're trying to give your kingdom over to God's kingdom, you start with a rich, God-centered prayer. Verse 16, Hezekiah says, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, O Lord of armies, powerful Lord of armies, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, enthroned above everyone else. Like, you are God, you alone are God of all the kingdoms of the earth. There's no other kingdom that rivals you. You have made heaven and earth. You're the creator and sustainer of the whole world. Like, the God who made the earth is in charge of every aspect of it. No other kings rival your power. I believe in God the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven. The next time you feel the kingdoms of this world breathing threats against you and against the kingdom of Christ, you just remind yourself, I believe, and just spread it out before the Lord, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, the creator of heaven and earth, the powerful God over all the kingdoms of the earth. Like, who can mess with the maker? Verses 17, 18, and 19, you've got this beautiful contrast between the gods of the nations and the true and living God. Verse 17, incline your ear, O Lord, He's praying, right? So he's praying a very God-centered, richly um, character-driven prayer about who God is, what he has done, how powerful he is. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see all the words of Sennacherib, which he sent to mock you, to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, verse 18 the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations of their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands and wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. Hezekiah prays, God, you don't have eyes because you're God. You don't have real physical eyes. You're you don't have eyes, but you see, right? God, you, you don't have physical ears, but you made people with them, and you hear, and, and we know you see, and you hear, and God, you don't have hands or feet like man does, but you are so powerful. The gods of the nations, which do have eyes, but cannot see, ears, but cannot hear, hands and feet, but cannot walk or move or do anything, those idols were tossed into the fire, but God, you're so powerful. You can act. You can be the Lord of the world. You are the Lord of the world. So now, verse 20, oh God, save us. I love that. It's like, of course he's going to get to save us. You wouldn't be human if you didn't pray, Lord, get me out of this threat. But that's not where he starts. He starts with who God is. Then he says, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are God. See, his prayer, the most striking thing about this prayer is its focus on God more so than deliverance. He asks God to justify himself, to prove himself, to be God among the nations. 
so that all people will know who the true and living God is, right? The mocking, again, in verse 17, there's this mocking theme again. And so Hezekiah is less concerned about Jerusalem and more concerned about the name of God. He's less concerned about the city and more concerned about the city of God. He's less concerned about his own uh, feeling of the threat and the circumstances and more concerned about what God is doing to glorify his great name. So when you feel threatened by evil, intimidated by earthly powers that be, when you pray, what is your first concern? When you pray, when you pray and you feel threatened by by evil or threatened by the intimidating earthly powers at school or at work or in our country, even in a present political climate. What drives your prayer life? Does the outcome drive your prayer life? Does what you think needs to happen differently drive your prayer life? Hezekiah is teaching me something here. He's teaching me, he's teaching me my first concern as I pray should be richly God-centered. God, I am banking on you more. Listen, this, I know this is gonna, not going to sound right to you at first, but, but hear it. Please believe this this morning. Please believe the hope of the gospel and the promise of the gospel. God, I am more interested in you being at stake, your name, your glory being at stake than anything else. Do you remember Daniel? and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they're, 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 they're being intimidated to bow and worship, and Nebuchadnezzar wants them to bow and worship this huge golden image, this, this expensive, beautiful image that he's made to honor himself and his own kingdom, and, and they say, we will not bow and worship your kingdom. That's what they're saying. We're not going to worship another God. You're the true, God, Yahweh is the true and living God. We will not worship King Nebuchadnezzar. We will not worship any image. Uh, we will not worship anything like that. And, and they say to him, do you remember that, like the punchline in that, in that section of the story? Our God is strong enough to deliver us from the furnace, King Nebuchadnezzar. You could toss us in the furnace, and he's strong enough to deliver us from the furnace. But even if he doesn't, we will trust him. We will never bow down to your idol. We need you to understand that. We will never bow down to your idol. Because you're not God. Hezekiah prays a rich, God-centered prayer that makes God, God. And then he says at the end, God, save us. Yeah, you should definitely include that part. Help me. The threats are real. Not sure where this is going. But, but we start with God making himself and his name famous and not being mocked the true and living God. Here's the third act. 
the unrivaled king on his throne. Act three is about God's response to Hezekiah's prayer. So it says it in verse 21. So I'm in chapter 37, verse 21. Then Isaiah sent a message to Hezekiah saying, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me concerning the king of Assyria, here's the word, here's the word about him. This is what's going to happen to him. And then King Sennacherib is compared to a violent, dominating man trying to violate a beautiful young woman. Verse 22. She despises you. She scorns you. The virgin daughter of Zion, Jerusalem. The daughter of Jerusalem. Whom you, like... Oh, verse 23, rather. It, it, it says, this is God speaking. Whom have you mocked and reviled? Do you know who it is that you're addressing? And against whom you've raised your voice? Against the Holy One of Israel. Verse 24. By your servants you have mocked the Lord, and you've said, with many chariots I've gone up to the heights and mountains and the far recesses of Lebanon and cut down its trees and its choices, cypresses, and basically uh, I've taken the cities that I wanted to take, and I've, I've taken the land that I wanted to take. Verse 26, have you not heard that I determined it long ago, that you haven't done anything outside of my boundaries? You know, it almost reminds me of, of the way God speaks of Satan and boundaries in Job. You're not in charge. In, in, in fact, it, it goes on in verse 20, 28. God says to the king of Assyria, who thinks he's the great king of the earth, who's ready to enthrone himself as the great king of the earth, he says to him, I know, you, I know when you sit down, I know when you get up, I know when you leave the room, I know when you come, I, I know when you come and when you go, I, you're, and, and I know you're raging against me, and you have raged against me, and, 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 and I will put a hook in your nose and a bit in your mouth, and I will lead you like, a, like an animal wherever I want to take you. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and he directs it wherever he pleases. What's the point of these three acts, these two chapters, 36 and 37? What's the point of this story? And then you keep going on, verse 33, thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, he won't even come into this city or shoot, he won't, he's got thousands of warriors, not one arrow will fly unless I let it happen, God says. In verse 36, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down the camp of the Assyrians, and there were dead bodies everywhere, and Sennacherib's life comes to an end in verse 38. What's the point of all this? The point of these two chapters is that there's one unrivaled king on the earth, and it's the Lord. God 
is the unrivaled king. Yahweh is the unrivaled king of all nations. And the reason this historical account remains in the Bible is not simply to keep history clear and true and right, but also so that you and I will learn from the story and embrace God as king in my own life. That you, would, that you would increasingly let him annex territory of your heart and life to his. That the kingdom of Christ would continue to grow. That the kingdom of God would take up more and more and more space and land and money and, and stuff that you used to call yours. How can I embrace God as the king, like how can I learn to pray to the unrivaled king? How can I learn to embrace God as king in my life? And if you fast forward to the New Testament, you will see the consistent witness and testimony of the apostles in the New Testament is that Jesus, who was born of Joseph and Mary, is vice-regent with God and He's the prince who represents the king on the earth and, and he came to bring his kingdom about. And we're living right now between these two kingdoms. Like, I mean, I'm sorry. We're living right now between um, these two times when his kingdom has been inaugurated through his death, burial, and resurrection and he will one day come again. And between those two times, he wants Jesus as king to take more and more people into his kingdom and have more and more parts of our hearts and souls to reflect his kingdom. And the church, by the way, is the testimony that God's kingdom is alive. So the church is all, of it, all these individuals who have given their territory over to Christ and who Jesus is, is, is claiming more and more parts of our lives, then we come together and he's claiming us as a group of people so the church becomes like a colony of the kingdom, right? So the kingdom is fully and truly in heaven right now, but it's coming to earth. It's not here yet. The church is a place where the kingdom is being worked out and the values of the kingdom and the reigning of the king is being practiced how can I embrace God as king in my life? You can start today by trusting in Jesus Christ as God's vice regent. The true and better David. The true and better Hezekiah. The messianic prince who brings the kingdom of heaven down to earth. Fundamental to Christianity. So if you're thinking about Christianity for the first time, seriously considering it, listen to this. Fundamental to Christianity is the conviction that no earthly king or earthly power rivals Jesus Christ. Fundamental to Christianity is the conviction that no other rival can really compete with Jesus. Now, it doesn't look like it right now, but ultimately, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father before he hands it all back. And the kingdom of God comes, I mean, kingdom of God and heaven comes to earth 
fully and finally. Though he was born during the reign of King Herod and suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, he rose again. And the point of the resurrection is to, is to say that his rule and his kingdom is unstoppable. And it's growing. And our confidence is in his kingdom, not in our kingdom. And not in earthly kingdoms. This is why we confess Jesus as Lord. Like this is why we say Jesus is Lord. Because it's a, it's a um, royal title. We're saying, I no longer live for my empire. I'm living for the empire of Christ. I no longer live for my kingdom. I'm living for the kingdom of Christ. It's, when we call Jesus Lord, it's a statement of kingship. It's a statement of dominion. Jesus, just as God is the unrivaled king over Sennacherib, so Jesus Christ is the unrivaled earthly king. And we want to trust him. He's the humble, crucified king who will one day return. And we live right now between the, the, really the ultimate dominion of his kingdom, which is coming again, and the church experiencing and tasting the kingdom now. So I want to invite you, if you've never said, Jesus, I want you to be the unrivaled king of my own heart and soul, do that today. Like, do that today. Test God's promise in Christ. Can I pray for us? Let's ask God to speak to us as we pray. Lord, the one who dwells far above. God, you are the one who made heaven and earth and you alone are the king of all the kingdoms of the earth. To you we pray this morning and we pray to you through your son and by your spirit, your son who mediates the kingdom of God in our lives. Jesus, we pray that you would be our king today. I, I want to ask you to take just, just a second and voice a simple, quiet prayer like that. Jesus, be my king. Be the Lord of every aspect of my life. And Lord, show me where the rivals are coming from. And teach me how to yield myself to you. We pray all this so that Jesus, who is the King, would be glorified. Let's sing in response. Sing to build your faith today.